Uh, thanks, guys. I appreciate that. Yeah, for those of you who don't know me, my name's Paul. I'm part of the leadership team here at Life Church. And uh, yay, thank you. <laughs> I wasn't doing it for a cheer, I was just purely doing it for information. But uh, thank you, thank you for that encouragement. All right. So um, we just, as a church, finished a series on 1 Peter. And now we're going to dig into the book of Ezra. Um, so we've gone from a letter um, to the Christians by one of Jesus' disciples to account um, about 530 years before Jesus. Um, and as a church, we believe that what it says um, in the Bible is true, that all scripture, um, sort of all that is in here, is inspired by God um, in a special way for him, by him. And so it's useful. It's useful for us. And it says it's useful for teaching, it's useful for, for correction, it's useful for training, that we may be a people who are equipped by God for every good work. That's, that's what it's for, and that's why, we, that's why we continually look every week at what the Bible says. Um, now, there's kind of quite a lot in here, as uh, they reference with the, with, with the kids. It is all good, as Sam says. Um, but sometimes we, just, we have to take a, a long view on it. We're not going to get through it all in one day. We're not going to get through it all in one month. We're not going to get through it all in one year. And so as a team, we, we take a long view on it and we plan to try and have a balanced, a balanced diet of, uh, of Scripture um, over the course of, of several years. And sometimes we'll look at certain books. And we did that with 1 Peter. We've done that previously with, with Ephesians. Um, and uh, yeah, there's a whole variety of, of different books in the, in the Bible, you know, ones about history, historical accounts, um, narratives, there's letters, there's prophecy, there's, there's, there's poetry. You know, some, th- some things just feel like direct teaching um, to us. And other times we'll look to see what the whole Bible has to say on particular topics. Um, so we, we did that with the, the character of God, didn't we? God is, and then we sort of segued into Jesus is at the end just before, just before Easter. Um, now, Ezra is one of the books of the Bible, so we're just going to work through a section of Ezra together. Um, it can be found in the, the first half of the Bible, and you might want to start, um, start finding it. It's just after Kings and Chronicles. At the moment, my Bible naturally falls open at Ezra because I've been looking at it over the past few weeks, um, but I appreciate that yours might not actually naturally fall open there. So uh, start, having a, start having a look at it. Um, and it's an account of... Um, a portion of Israel, um, that's God's people. It's a, it's a portion of their, of their history. Ezra and Nehemiah, the book that, the book that follows Ezra, um, is thought to be originally compiled as one book, and they're fairly certain that it was written by Ezra himself, the man himself, Ezra, um, who is one of the key figures in the book a little bit later on. Um, we don't actually mention him um, at the start here, but uh, he, he does get a mention later on. Um, I think our looking... Uh, Ezra is particularly timely, timely because of our preaching series on 1 Peter. Remember at the start of 1 Peter, we talked about exiles, you know, people being exiles. And uh, that's a theme that runs all the way through um, the Old Testament. And it's the center of Peter's teaching and the idea that we as Christians are exiles in the world. We're part of another kingdom, we're part of God's kingdom, but we live in this world. And um, yeah, exile was such a prominent theme in the Old Testament. And we see it sort of again and again. And the book of Ezra, um, along with some other books around there, sort of Chronicles, which is just before, and the book of Esther, um, Daniel, I think, um, show us why. The, the people of Israel, they were kicked out of their promised land because they, as a direct result of just generations of them not following God. 
they choose to go their own way. And uh, you know, God gave them warnings. He gave them warnings and they took his hand off them. And we're left with the, the question, so is this the end? Is this the end of God's people? You know, they have had repeated warnings and now finally they've been kicked out of the promised land, which it took God ages to get them into. Um, and now they've, they've been kicked out and uh, taken over by, by other powers. But as we explore this probably lesser known bit of Israel's history, I think we will see that even here God had a plan to restore his people. And I, I talk a lot about Israel or God's people, and uh, that's because God wanted a people for himself. God still wants a people for himself. It says in Isaiah 43 that, that, that God wanted people for himself. And I love... There's some, some of the, we've got, we've got a list of names in chapter two in Ezra and some of, some of the Old Testament can be a little bit hard work, but I love, I love reading and seeing the pattern of God's character through the Bible, the story of God, the world and people and uh, the character of God towards the people. And uh, they, originally, you know, they originally chose to go their own way, didn't they? Adam and Eve, they chose to go their own way. And uh, he has sought to bring them to himself again and again. We see that through the, throughout the Old Testament, to have a people of his own. And that people was called Israel, and they were, they were special to him. Um, and so the, they were special, and he wanted to dwell with them. He wanted to be with them. And they, that echoes back to, to the Garden of Eden, echoes back to creation, doesn't it? Where, where God created some people to be with them. It's, it, it talks about God walking in the garden in the cool of the evening. It's such a wonderful picture, and God, throughout the Old Testament, has been trying to bring people back to himself all the way through the Bible. That's one of the patterns that we see in this as we, as we read through. It's a continuous theme, and eventually it really points to Christ, and it sees um, its fulfillment in him. So Israel, at the time um, that we're looking at, Israel had seen God's provision. Um, they'd seen a, God make a way for them to come out of slavery in Egypt, you know, quite spectacularly. Um, They'd govern, you know, to govern themselves in the land, a land that was described as overflowing with milk and honey. That's like the, the old way of saying just a bountiful land, a bountiful land that will provide well and be, bring such pleasure to the people who, who live in it. Um, but they had a pattern of turning away from God, following religions of others around them, being seduced into, into following and worshipping and other things, doing their own thing. And God warns them. And he warns them, and then he takes his hand of protection off them. And we see this many times repeated. But as we've said, God always has a plan to restore. And if we pick up the story two, about 2,700 years ago, when the book of Ezra starts, we've just seen a big shake-up for the people of Israel. First of all, there'd been a split. So the 12 tribes, the 12 big families of Israel had split. Ten in the northern kingdom had gone off and just following other gods. And you just had two that remained, sort of mainly, mainly Judah. Um, and that's why it's kind of in the, old, in the New Testament. Um, you know, Judah, Jews, and sort of that's, that's the remnant. That's why people are referred to as, God's people are referred to as Jews um, in the New Testament. But they weren't following God either. And they were conquered by the, the Babylonian, uh, Babylonian Empire by someone called Nebuchadnezzar. Um, which if you can spell Nebuchadnezzar, then uh, bonus points for that. My spell check did not like Nebuchadnezzar when I first typed it in. I'm not sure I've got it right, but um, the, majority of, yeah, the majority of people, when uh, the Babylonian Empire came in, the majority of people were taken away from their land. 
and their cities. The temple of God in Jerusalem, which had taken ages to be formed and sanctified, you know, as a place of worship where God would dwell with his people permanently. That had been ransacked, all the valuable items had been taken away, all the items they used to worship God in the temple had been taken away. The temple destroyed and left in ruins. And all that was left was some people to look after the sheep and some of the crops in the field. That was all that was, that was, all that was left. The people were conquered and they were in exile. Then to add slightly more calamity, just before we, we, we actually start reading the passage, the Babylonian Empire themselves were then taken over by the Persians. And the Israelites were now in a foreign land, and they were ruled by one person, but now they've just been conquered and ruled by another person, still in a foreign land, whilst, yeah, it's all, it's all a bit of a mess, to be honest, for God's people. So we'll look at, we'll look at the passage itself. Um, we're covering the first six chapters of Ezra in this series, and today we'll look at the first two chapters, though we'll only read really uh, chapter one and a little bit of chapter two together now. And it starts in the first year after the Persians had conquered the Babylonians. Are we with it so far? It's easy for me, I've got it all written down, but hopefully you guys are following, following as well. We've done a quick whistle-stop tour of some history, and then uh, let's read the passage together. So if you've got it on your, on your phones or um, on Bibles in your hand, do, do follow along. So it says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them. 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Zariah, Reliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispah, Bigvi, Rahum, and Barna. And we'll stop there. And I'll grab a drink. <laughs> so we see Ezra kicks off very quickly um, and gets straight into it with a speech. Bit of an odd speech, but a speech of great importance, um, but also slightly confusing. 
So it's a speech of great importance because it's said to be a fulfillment of a prophecy. And that prophecy spoke of the destruction, but then the end of exile. And so this speech by Ezra um, is introduced by Ezra at the start as, as, as bringing the fulfillment of the prophecy um, that God had spoken through Jeremiah. And you find that in Jeremiah 25, verse 11. It says, This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. The ruin and the waste have been seen and fulfilled. Um, but now this is the end of the 70 years. This is what the, the author claims. So it's not quite 70 years. Um, and the people are still in exile. But it's the beginning of the end. The beginning of the fulfilment of what God had said through Jeremiah. So it's important, but it's still slightly confusing. And this is kind of one of the juxtapositions of this book. Luke, you did quite a bit of work prepping this. Sort of very kindly gave us the, the phrase juxtapositions. Um, which is like pairs of facts or events which seem to run in parallel but also in contrast uh, to one another. They stand in uncomfortable contrast with one another. And we see this um, throughout the book. And that is why the series title that we've chosen, and I haven't actually mentioned yet, is, uh, is the question, hope fulfilled, rather than just that plain statement. It's like hope fulfilled, rather than just you know, the definite hope is fulfilled. And we'll see this sort of follow um, through in other talks as we, as we move through Ezra. So this is the position. The book speeches, uh, the speeches of fulfillment, the end of the 70 years of exile. But we see that God's people still live under a foreign ruler away from their homeland. But there is an encouragement, a partial fulfillment, a step on the way. And I love how, I love how God does this. Um, I really do. This is our God, even in difficult times. In difficult times for the people, he gives encouragement. There is progress. My heart is still for you. I am doing things. Things are happening. And that was true now. It's true today as well. It's also a speech of great importance as it introduces the obsession, like the, the thread of the whole book, which is re-establishing the temple in Jerusalem. The place where God's presence would be with his people and where his people would worship and serve him. You know, it's, it's Cyrus Cyrus says, he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem. You know, go up and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. That's the, that's the, that's the main theme that runs through this book. And it's also a speech of great importance as it introduces the first of two kingly figures in this passage. The great King Cyrus of Persia. We already learned that he was greater than the Babylonians. He conquered the Babylonian Empire and made his empire even larger. He makes a proclamation throughout Israel for them to go back and return and rebuild the temple. But he's not one of God's people. He's not one of God's people. There's no evidence that he followed God. He released other peoples to go back and follow their own religion and worship their own religion and, and um, make sites of worship for their own religion. There's no real evidence that he followed God, even though he acts in the favour of God's people in this. There's a fabulous clay cylinder in the British Museum from this time which references King Cyrus of Persia releasing people to go back to the homeland to make places of worship to their gods. Fabulous. But we've got a mighty king of the world, King Cyrus, releasing some of God's people, showing mercy to them to go back to Jerusalem. But he's not in the line of Israelite kings. He's not the king of the promise. He's not one of the kings that God promises um, to his people. He's got something, but he's not got it all. 
Now, if we're looking, if we're looking for the true king of God's people, King Cyrus is not it. And then we have the response of the heads of the families and the leaders of the, of the exiles in Jerusalem. And then right at the start of chapter two, um, as they go back, we, we have the second of the two kingly figures in this passage, which I think visuals may have just highlighted for you because it's not, it's not easy to pick them out. Zerubbabel, the key leader who led the people out of Israel. He's named at the start of the list of the people who returned to, G, uh, to Jerusalem and then he's referenced throughout as a leader of the people. He is one of God's people. He's even in the line of David. This is so cool. He's even in the line of David. He appears in the family line of Jesus in Matthew 1. That family line which starts with Abraham through David and finishes with Jesus. Matthew 1 verse 12 says, And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtel, and Shealtel the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel the father of Abiod, and Abiod the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor. And it carries on. It carries on all the way to Jesus. So he's a king in that he is of the people and he is a leader of them. Indeed, he's from the line of David, which was one of God's promises to the people that they would have someone in the line of David as king over them. But Cyrus is still king of that part of the world. Zerubbabel only has limited power and authority. Again, he's got something, but he's not got it all. Hope fulfilled? Can anyone spot where we're going to go with this? There's no prizes for guessing. We... We have a kingly power who has, who has power and dominion over the known world and showed mercy to the people. And then we have a kingly figure from among the people who is leading the people back to the place where they could worship and serve God. A situation of hope and promise of a king, not perfectly filled. Why? Because it's only ever going to be completely filled in one. With those two aspects brought together in one. Complete filling complete fulfillment found in Jesus. And this passage sort of cries out for him to come and make it complete. The king, Jesus, who not only has all power, it says about him, power and authority, dominion, rule and reign over all things on earth and in heaven, now and forever, has been given to him. He's got the power and authority to bring God's mercy to all. And the one who is God with us from among his people. We see him at the end of Matthew 1 the genealogy, the family tree, who perfectly made a way for us to come to God, the Father, to live in his mercy and to worship and serve him. Hope fulfilled? Well, yes, in part through Zerubbabel and King Cyrus, but absolutely and completely by our King Jesus. And before we sort of dived into the, the kingly figures, I mentioned the main thrust, the obsession, the purpose that runs throughout this book. Can anyone remember? Shout it out if you remember the main thrust that runs through this book. Yes, thank you. <laughs> rebuilding rebuilding the, time, the temple, re-establishing the temple in Jerusalem, the place where God has chosen for his people to worship and serve him in the land he'd promised them and given them. And from the beginning, God has created people in his own image and to be in close relationship with him. I said before, I love, I love the image of God walking in the cool of the evening in the Garden of Eden, just that closeness. That closeness, that's what, God, that's what God purposed for us. When he created man, he purposed that we would walk in real close communion with him. And even after man has decided to go his own way, even after we've decided to go our own way, he makes a way for them. A promised land for his people, a place where his presence will be. And they can worship and serve him in the temple. And that is the thrust of this narrative. That is the thrust of this story. The return of the people explicitly to rebuild the temple and reestablish worship of God. 
That's what Cyrus said. He was stirred to release the people too. He didn't follow God, but God somehow stirred him to release his people to do that. And it's not about them returning to the promised land. It's not about them taking, you know, taking self-governance and living free and independent lives. That's not what it's about. It's about freedom to worship God. And I'm sure this will be looked at. I'm unfortunate I'm the first one up. I'm sure this will be looked at in detail and more and more as we, as we get through Ezra into the rebuilding of the temple. But it thrills my heart to read this because I'm genuinely convinced that this is God's character. God's purpose for us now. You know, for the church as a whole, for people all the way through the whole history of mankind into eternity. Yeah, to have that closeness with God and to worship him, to see him for who he really is and to worship him. I feel that's, 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 that's God's character and we can't ignore it. And about, about a year and a half ago, whilst we were still meeting in Fletton Centre, could be two years ago, um, having those fantastic back-to-back meetings, everyone kind of like crammed in, looking to refer, return to a venue that suited us better. And for me, Exodus 33 became one of the things that, that God was just putting on my heart. And it became so strong for me in that time where Moses said to God, unless you go with us, how will people know that we are your people? Unless you go with us, unless your presence is with us, how will people know that we are your people? And it became more than just finding a new venue, which practically is more comfortable. It was about knowing God on the way and having his presence with us as we go forward. I believe God has done that for us. I mean, we're, we're in the venue. But I, when, when we were meeting together in Fletton, even there, there was, and now here as well, there was a clear sense of God's presence, a peace, a comfort. I don't know whether you noticed in the, I don't know, maybe the last six, eight weeks, there's sometimes just been a stillness when we've been in this place together. You know, we've worshipped and there's just been a stillness. It's just wonderful. It's just wonderful. That's, that's God's sort of manifest presence amongst us. You know, sort of his felt presence, his experienced presence amongst us. And I've been so encouraged reading Ezra again. And we have to be careful. We can't always take parallels from the Old Testament narrative and sort of apply them and overlap them directly onto, onto our lives. I always cross the River Neen on a bridge I don't stand at the edge waiting for God to part the river Neen so I can walk across on dry ground. <laughs> we, do, we, do have to be, we do have to be careful how we do that. But we can allow ourselves to be encouraged by the character of God that flows out of these passages. The character of God that's been shown in some everlasting purposes and principles that he has for us. And the thrust of Ezra is about re-establishing the full worship of God in the temple of Jerusalem. It's not about the restoration of the promised land, taking back control about resources. It's about worshipping him and being in a place where his presence is with his people and they worship and serve him in response. And I've been encouraged afresh because all this year, 2023, has been for me a year where I've just been living with a sense that God wants to do something like that amongst us. He wants to do something for us and through us in this area. That first and foremost, when we gather to worship him, we gather to worship him in fullness, in his presence. And I believe he's wanting to release a fresh, a fresh expression of that, as, of that amongst us. 
in a greater level of joy and adoration of him. That's why I'm so thrilled every time we speak about Jesus and what he has done for us. I must have the little calculation last night as I was finishing this off. must have heard it referenced about 100,000 times at least in my life already. But it excites me more than ever. Jesus and what he has done for me. The king who was to come and has come. The one whom the hope was to be completely fulfilled in. He came, he conquered through the most beautiful surrender. The most beautiful surrender. And he lives and he brought us access to the Father through his spirit. I find it staggering that God, for a fallen people, a people who chose to go their own way, who decided to go their own way, he sent his son Jesus for us. God himself took on the confines of human body. Not only that, he then gave that willingly up to death on a cross for us so that we may be seated with him in the heavenly places. Adopted as children of God. Not, it says not just as children of God, but heirs with Christ. Heirs with him to all that he has. We have an inheritance. You know, the ultimate king who sits in heaven above, above all authority and rule and dominion. Everything has been placed under his feet. And we sit, our inheritance is sitting with him. We're allowed to inherit that with him. Jesus said, if you believe in me, you have the right to be called children of God. He's done it. We just have to believe. It's amazing. It's absolutely outrageous. It's staggering that God would do that for us. Amazing Father, beautiful King, powerful Holy Spirit who works in us to see that come to fruition. I believe that God is wanting to pour out. He's wanting to pour out something new. And notice we'll increase in our joy in worship in these times. I get encouraged and stirred afresh when I read these passages. I read and you read the response to the invitation to go up and reestablish the temple. Whereas verse 5, it says that it says that God has stirred their spirits to go up and rebuild. The people, God has stirred their spirits to go up and rebuild. Jesus has said he will build his church. He has said he will build his church. And I wait and I pray with expectant heart for an even fuller revealing of that amongst us here. This is what he promises. This is God. This is his character. It just flows out of him. And he has it. He has it for us. The releasing of God's people. The people in exile had to listen. They had to respond to this as well. They had to do something. They had to rise up, but it was God who encouraged them and made a way. As the same verse six, it was he who released it was he who released the treasures out of the storehouses, and the people added what they had to. It's this wonderful picture of God releasing gifts to his people, gifts that helped them worship him. And the people sort of added as well. They had free will offerings that they gave as well. The people responded, they rose up to go together to worship their God. And the releasing of God's people to go and reestablish the temple and the worship, that was before the 70 years that Jeremiah had prophesied. That was before the 70 years were up that they were released. Let's be expectant. Let's be expectant. It was instigated by a king who didn't follow God and a king who didn't have power or authority in the land that he lived and over the people that he was supposed to lead. We serve and follow a king who has got that power and authority. We follow and serve a king who is God himself. He is God himself. How much more can we expect from that king for us? How many more gifts and treasures out of the storehouses do you think he wants to bestow upon us? What shall we bring? What shall we bring? What will be our free will offering to him?
My friends, we are going to be a people, a church, that not only, not only have the sort of the manifest, the felt, the experienced presence of God amongst them when they meet together, but it will be seen that there is joy in that as well. It will be seen that there is adoration and worship. It will be seen that, that, that God, that Jesus, is the only one who deserves true praise, is the only one who deserves all, ever deserving, continually. There are many things in this world that, that, that deserve praise, many things in this world that deserve worship, that get given worship and praise by us and by people around us. There's only one whoever consistently deserves it. There's only one who deserves it all completely, and that is Jesus. He should be celebrated and adored in his church, if not in his church, where? I'm expecting he's going to release into us something special. My friends, I don't want you to feel a pressure that you have to worship with more vigor. It's not a pressure. It was God who went before the people. He released stuff for them, but they responded and they rose up and they gave their free will offering to go and worship God in his presence with his people together. And that'll be special. That'll be special. I think he's going to do something special amongst us and we as a people will rise up and we will respond to that. Let's make sure we have expectant hearts when we come together, expectant hearts to worship our king. During the week, expectant hearts, just reminding ourselves of what Jesus has done for us, the magnitude of that. The magnitude of that, it doesn't get smaller, it only gets bigger in our hearts. And if it is getting smaller, we need to do something about it. We need to see him in all his glory. And chapter two is mainly a list of those who responded. Let us be on that list of names. Let us be on that list of names who responded to God's calling and stirring to worship in greater measure, in greater power, bringing our gifts, our free will offerings of worship as he enables us, as he equips us, anoints us, releases greater understanding of who Jesus is through his spirit in our hearts. Let's be people whose names are on those lists as we want to go up and we want to worship our king. And final thing. The rest of the chapter two lists the exiles who, re- who returned to Jerusalem. Sort of the Levites, the priests, it lists them, the temple servants, the singers, the gatekeepers. And for me, lists of names are important. I haven't read it because I'll just trip over it this morning. But it's important. God is a God who is interested in the individual. Throughout history, throughout the Bible, he's interested in the individual. It's about a personal relationship. I love the genealogies because it just highlights people through that story, through that history. People whose names are written in the book of life. People who live for eternity with their saving God. What struck me was a section further down the list. And there's a list of some, some of the people who are sons of the priests. But in the confusion, they've been taken over, thrown out of their land. You know, all the confusion that's gone before with them not following God and following God, not following God. They couldn't prove their genealogy. They couldn't prove their family tree. They couldn't prove that they were in the line of the priests. And so they were excluded. <laughs> they were excluded from being in the priesthood because they couldn't prove their family line. It says they could not partake of the most holy food. That's devastating. That is devastating. To want to go up and worship your God in closeness, and you're denied because you can't prove something from your history. Friends, these are people whose hope was not fulfilled. 
There's a desire to be able to go and serve and worship their God in his presence, denied. But praise God, through Jesus, that is not the case. There is hope completely and everlastingly fulfilled for us. In John 1, it speaks of Jesus. But all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That is our promise. That is our hope fulfilled. We don't have to look back at our past lineage. We look to Jesus who establishes us as children of God. And we read recently in 1 Peter 2. Join in if you can remember it. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his, Jesus' own possession, that you may proclaim the excellences of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. My friends, we don't have to worry about our family line. We just have to worry about believing on Jesus. And he accepts us in. He calls us in to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation, with full access to the Father, full access to the Spirit, to God's presence, to worship him, to follow him, to give our lives to serve him. One day we'll see him face to face. One day we'll see him face to face. There'll be no veil There'll be no big heavy curtain separating the people and the presence of God. We'll see our saviour, King Jesus, face to face. Hope fulfilled. King Jesus and his people, a people for his own possession. No power struggles, no empires changing hands. It is done. It is done. King Jesus able to lead his people to proclaim the excellences of God. The King Jesus who had the authority and the power to declare complete mercy for us all. And this is what we celebrate. This is what we see in part in Ezra. We see it in part in Ezra. We see it fulfilled completely in Jesus. Completely in Jesus. The way to come to the Father through the beautiful King. King Jesus. King overall. And he deserves our praise deserves our adoration. That's what we're going to sort of roll into now. Hopefully that's been a bit of a springboard for us. We're able to do this because of the blood of Jesus. God himself took on human form. I don't know what he was like before in heaven, but he wasn't, certainly wasn't confined as a human who got tired, who got hungry, who got abused. Jesus confined himself as a human. Fully God, yet fully man. And endured disgrace to the cross for the sake of the joy set before him, which is us. Which is us. I think now would be a good time to take communion. It's a physical reminder of what Jesus has done for us. It's good to thank him to remind ourselves of what he has done. I'm going to invite the band to come back up. So I think that then naturally flows into praise as well. So if you've got your little pots, do grab them.
I think I'll lead us through a short prayer and then hand over to the band. If you're not a believer, don't call yourself a follower of Jesus amongst us. That's fine. Don't feel like you have to take the bit of bread and the bit of juice. We do that because we love to remember our Saviour King. We love to remember our Saviour King. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the King that has all authority, all power. Everything is in your hands. You held it lightly. You humbled yourself to come down to earth, take on the form of a human and endure all that was thrown at you, even to death on a cross. Through your death, you may take the wrath of God for our waywardness, for the way we follow other things. You took it all upon yourself. And now, there will, for those who believe in you, there will not be a time where you lift your hand of protection from us. And not be a time where we're exiled away from your presence. Through you, Lord Jesus, we have access to the Father through the Spirit. Through you, we have access to the most holy of holies, to worship you in your presence. We thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. We celebrate you, Lord Jesus, the King, that the whole story of man and God points towards, the King, hope fulfilled completely and utterly, now and forever in you. We love you, Lord Jesus. We praise you. We thank you, Lord. Amen.